Striving for mediocrity in a world of excellence, this is The Chaser Report. Hello and welcome to The Chaser Report. It is Wednesday the 8th of June 2022. Dom Knight and Charles Firth. And Charles, our guest today has actually done what we didn't do during our daily election podcast. Yes. He's travelled yes. around the country, talked to actual voters. Oh, dear. We tried to keep that out of our podcast, yeah. didn't we? Lech Blaine's got the cover story uh, in the monthly. It's Teal and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. It's very, very long and detailed and has quality reporting, so it's a bit of a change from the usual focus of this podcast. Yeah, so maybe if you're a regular listener, tune out now. You, know, yeah. you, don't want to, you won't want to hear this one. <laughs> Catch up with you in a sec. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Chaser Report. News you know you can't trust. Like, welcome to The Chaser Report. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. You've been everywhere. <laughs> what did ordinary people think of Scott Morrison? Because that seems to be the crux of your essay. Uh, there, there was, I'd say, there were some surprising people who, like, still were quite sympathetic towards him. Usually people out, like, in regional areas, older people, even Labor voters would be like, oh, he's had a tough run, and, and then you'd talk to anyone who was sort of in a more metropolitan area or who had been closely affected by lockdowns or vaccinations and they were basically like, fuck Scott Morrison, I hate that guy so much. Uh, and that was became like this repetitive thing where if I had reported everyone who said, fuck ScoMo, like it just would have, it would have been like 80 odd people. Wow. <laughs> so you did talk to... Cause so the, so the, you talked to most of his colleagues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, no, so like I, I, reckon I, I reckon the essay probably has about 10% of the conversations that I had so I sort of had to try and, like, pick the ones that, like, uh, I guess encapsulated the mood of different places. But, like, I could have written, like, a 30,000-word essay of just these, like, really amazing <laughs> quotes from people, like, wandering around and stuff. It's a weird approach to journalism to go and actually talk to people. Shouldn't <laughs> you have just sat behind a desk and just intuited the vibe of the nation? Isn't that what you're supposed well, to it, do? It's, uh, so I'm from, um, I'm from Queensland. Uh, I lived in Bundy recently before moving to Sydney. And then um, came to Sydney. I noticed whenever I go home, uh, whenever I talk to people from home about any given issue, mm. is completely different to mm. the sort of consensus that I like now that I'm in Sydney. I'm sort of like moving through the media world. Like it's a very different uh, viewpoint. Like not not there, there's you know Brisbane still has its university educated progressive people, but there is still like this deep sense of parochialism and like uh, yeah, a willingness to take the piss out of like the leadership and leaders and what an unusual journal you are in australia to be able to move in in bundaberg <laughs> without seeming like a wanker from the inner city that's um <laughs> cling to that while you can <laughs> yeah well it's hard. like it's probably uh it's probably diminishing what, I, I, I can't i can't be the i can't be the outsider from queensland um for too much longer after moving to the eastern suburbs of sydney so what's the uh, coffee like in bundaberg mate it's uh they had this place called in indulge which was like unbelievable they mm. um it actually closed down but um, they, they used to like <laughs> no demand. <Yeah. laughs> no, yeah, they weren't serving rum. It right. was uh, it was it was super popular. It had yeah. like um, they used to have like Kingfisher on um, like omelets and shit. So like it was oh, um, oh. it was really uh, it was probably probably better than any of the cafes that I've been to in Sydney. So but I'm I mean, not just saying that from a parochial point of view. This <laughs> is really interesting because I I think the media in their attempt to try and 
make this kind of a horse race, as you describe in the essay, they didn't really get that a lot of people in Australia had just had enough of the guy. Yeah, or had just had enough of politics in general. Like, mm. um, like I was up in Biloela, which didn't didn't go into the piece because I just I sort of had to prioritise the seats that had. Um, changed hands, mm. and also everyone who works for the monthly just has to go to Villa yeah. regularly. I think is um, the rules. And, and, and so it was really interesting because we're at the pub, and uh, I was with some of the organisers for the Home to Billo campaign, and they brought a couple who were national voters, farmers, and so the one, the two consensuses at the table were um, bringing the family back to Billowilla, and we hate fucking gotcha questions. So um, like that, that came from the farmers as well, and they were talking about Albert, like they were like they. There was a bunch of things they didn't like about Albanese, but they were like the one thing that they sympathised with him about was uh, these gotcha questions. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> which I'd relate to because if you'd been through school and you're not a little smart ass know it all, mm. you'd, wouldn't you have flashbacks when you saw <laughs> that, that, that just being put on the spot that, by some annoying what, teacher? Oh, that's what old mate the farmer said. He, the, the first thing he said was, "Mate, I, I can't ever vote for Labor. I've heard that." Um, Albanese is going to make Bill Shorten the agricultural minister. And so that was the rumour going around Bill Wheeler. Uh, and then he was like, um, politics should be about ideas, not a pop quiz, which mm. is like, yeah, it was, um, was interesting coming from someone who was like shit canning Albanese otherwise. Mm. And a point that was lost on most of the press gallery. Yeah. Well, it's, and, and I'd get like, then I'd dip, dip into the campaign, then dip out to like go around and um, it, it, my own perceptions would change of like what was happening in the campaign depending mm. on like mm. which mode I was in. So I I was definitely at the start of the campaign was like, oh, Albanese could lose the election because of this gaffe, like it, because I was mm. consuming just constant Twitter, mm. um, like new, like newspaper articles and that sort of thing. And then a lot of people that I would talk to, not only did they not bring up um, like the gaffe, they barely knew who Anthony Albanese was. So <laughs> like, that, like that wasn't necessarily, like if you, if you, don't even really have a awareness of the guy. It's, that sort of stuff's not really registering. So did you find that the people who were more sympathetic towards Scott Morrison and Scott Morrison's plight, had they engaged less in the sort of rough and tumble of the last three years? Was it a sort of more of a perception? Like, you know, there was lots of comments during the campaign on Vox Pops in regional areas where it was sort of like, well, we came through the pandemic, Quite all right. Yeah. So he need he deserves another three years because well, he got us through. And and to anyone who <laughs> had lived in Sydney, was like, no, he was against us the whole time. So, and, and WA and in, in particular, and in mm. Melbourne, you know, yeah. like if you're in the cities, it was like you knew that no, he'd been trying to undermine the efforts yeah. to sort of control the virus. So, um, like my brother still lives in Bundaberg and is a car dealer up there, and I would call him throughout the pandemic and he was just sort of like what pandemic so the the it, it just mm. wasn't really happening god it would have been um, nice to be in queensland i don't yeah like like this i don't know why i say that but <laughs> regional queensland would have been incredible and, for the past and, two years and so like regional queensland boomed like every like mm. um beef the the drought ended mm. um commodity prices were going through the roof lots of people were moving there from down south so house prices in these like uh, regional areas were going through the roof as well so people actually felt like compared to 2019 where everyone in queensland was just fucking like ropeable People were a little bit more relaxed. That d didn't mean there was still people who didn't like Morrison, but um, people didn't feel as they'd been as affected by the stuff ups. It's very interesting that um, that that farmer that you spoke to was still angry about Bill Shorten three years later. Oh, like totally. the only thing he wanted <laughs> was not having Bill Shorten anywhere near his life. Yeah, and the and the like the the fact that there was this because he'd been to a, a national party lunch during the week and he was like, mm. "Yeah, mate." 
first thing Albanese is going to do is make Bill Shorten the agriculture minister. That's like, and, a, so like and, and, and people up there just have this. And it's amazing how the, this perception of Shorten over a long period of time was created and it was so toxic, even mm. though in, in a lot of ways him and Albanese, Albanese is a preacher of the party as well, but mm. he, he he was just received way more, seen as a way more amicable figure than mm. Bill Shorten. Like, even if people didn't know a lot about him, they didn't think that he was a bad dude who, like, wanted to do harm to them. Well, it's a pretty amazing loss when people are still hate you years after you've had <laughs> yeah. an influence. Okay, so Morrison, basically, this giant wave of anti-Morrison sentiment was largely missed by everyone. What about when you went to marginal seats? Because this is, I mean, it, it's if, if someone's in a safe nationals electorate, it doesn't really matter how much they hate Morrison or whatever, if, if the seat doesn't change hands. You were on the Teal story as well and, and some of the shifts going on there. What did you detect elsewhere in terms of how the election was won and lost? Well, it was so when uh, Morrison and the Liberals were sort of backgrounding that they were had this marginal like marginal seat campaign where they're going to go after, after these outer suburban labor seats mm. uh and i and, and because i'd gr- grown up in similar areas I, I sort of felt like there might actually be something in that because i mm. like I, I appreciate the way that um people are a little bit more socially conservative uh they're much more e- economically anxious and so I, I had this chat with this guy um named brad who's in the essay and i didn't get his final thoughts but I, I, I saw him at the Ipswich Jets Lees Club and, and he was one of the guys who was just like, fuck ScoMo. Like he voted for the LNP for the first time in 2019. Metal mm. worker, traditional Labor voter. Um, should have been, Was like the ideal person that Morrison had in mind when he was thinking of these mm. like outer suburban, quiet Australians. He's in the seat of Blair, which um, Pauline Hanson ran in in 1998 and got like 35% of the primary vote. So this was like one of the key seats along with like Parramatta um, and Karangamide in Victoria where the Liberals thought, to say to compensate for the teal seats, they'll flip all these red seats, mm. um, and then yeah, guys like Brad, I messaged him the night before the election, and I was still sort of like, "What the fuck is going to happen tomorrow?" Uh, and I said, "Mate, who did you vote for? Who did you end up voting for?" Because when I spoke to him, he was like, "Fuck the Liberals, fuck Labor, fuck the Greens. I don't know who I'm going to vote. Like, I just don't know who I'm going to vote for." And so I messaged him night before election, and, and he said, um, "I'm voting for La- I voted for Labor." Mm. So he, he did a he did a pre poll, and so what he said was. <laughs> which sort of took my breath away. He was like, I voted for, uh, I'm still worried that Labor are going to introduce new taxes. Like mm. that was the thing, mm. the, the bad thought that he had about Labor, like this gut mm. instinct. But he was like, the Liberals have no vision for the country. Uh, I, I'm actually, I'm hoping that Labor will do more for renewable energy uh, and treat Aboriginal people a bit better. And 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 this bloke, like, he's like um, big redheaded metal worker covered in tattoos. He's like, if, if you wanted to try and pigeonhole people or, or stereotype them based on how they appear, you'd think that he was ve- going to be very sympathetic towards Morrison's sort of dog whistles and mm, mm. all this different shit. But and, like, the, and the blokey act. Yeah, too, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, mm. and so, but I, I think a lot of these voters in 2019, especially in Queensland where there's these massive swings against um, Labor, it, it, a lot of it was economic anxiety. And then I think... Uh, both sides of politics maybe overestimated how much it was based on cultural issues or uh, climate change and that sort of thing. But when Labor had took some of the heat out of those issues and, um, and and really presented as a safe pair of hands on the economy, they weren't going to increase taxes. Uh, people felt a bit safer going back to them. Mm. Mm. I had a friend who uh, saw some of the Labor's internal polling um, after the 2019 election and about six months before this election, we sat down chatting about it and he said, look, on one perspective, you could say that 
Morrison is a master campaign strategist. Right? That, that, that is one way of interpreting 2019 because they are behind the whole time mm. and then on election day they sealed the deal. The other interpretation you could have is that the polls were wrong the whole time. He was ahead the whole time mm. and then he just barely scraped through and he's actually a terrible campaigner. But less terrible than Sean is. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, to be fair, he had to yeah. beat a guy who had a very ambitious and scary yeah. program. And, uh, and, and who's, who, who was rating minus 40 uh, yeah. on net positive approval. And, and, like, and so you had short, the shorten factor, uh, the policy factor, and then you had Clive Palmer who mm, pumped yeah. all this money into... Um, his campaign for no real gain in votes, but just to mm. freak people the fuck out about Labor, uh, and then News Corp as well. So, um, yeah, m- I, I, I certainly pro- possibly over invested in this idea as Morrison had won all these people mm. purely through his like uh, persona. Mm. When I think, uh, yeah, as I said, I think a lot of people were voting based on economic anxiety, and the the smart thing that he did, the the persona made people feel comfortable. They like they didn't know much about him, so they yes. saw him as just like a yeah. This he was an empty container, yeah. and you could, you put could project it. project anything that you wanted onto him. Put a yeah. whole bunnings in it. Whether, yeah. whether you're a religious voter in like the outer suburbs of a capital city, whether you're a coal miner in like Cessnock or Gladstone, uh, there was yeah. He, he he was just able to sort of like send mm. little hints here and there to all these different groups of people to say, "I'm your guy." Well, it's interesting also the kind of disconnect that you chart between what's in voters' minds because you actually asked them on the day. And what people in the media think, like it becomes self perpetuating. People say, "Oh, it's a big mistake. He didn't. He didn't know the unemployment numbers." And then that goes through the campaign without ever being actually tested to see whether it was on the minds of anyone at all who it's actually going to vote. And from what you've discovered, voters are thinking far more holistically about policy, about people's actually lives, rather than the kind of horse race. And you write about this a bit too, the way that um, it sometimes gets reduced to a horse race, rather than looking at where people want the country to go. And one as- interesting aspect of this that you've, you picked up on was all these Liberal voters switching to the Greens. And you had a bit of a sense of that before what was a shock to everyone on election night, the notion that um, quite a few seats in Queensland went to the Greens, which it certainly was a bit of a fever dream probably from Adam Bant beforehand, but you kind of saw it coming. Well, I, I, when Bant predicted that that was going to, that they were going to win these three seats at his national pr- press club address, and I've lived in Brizzy um, on and off for five or six years, so I know the place well. And I, I thought Metropolitan Brisbane, a, a lot of these seats aren't that different to Metropolitan, like the Metropolitan seats in Sydney and Melbourne. So it's not like they're quite different to going up to Capricornia or Dawson or Flint. Um, but I still thought it, it sounded pretty over-optimistic. Uh, and then when I got up to Brizzy, I, I had this conversation with Paul Hilton, who I quote in the essay, and he's a grandson of a Labor MP, rural Labor MP, the son of a trade unionist who went, went into accounting and became pretty well off and was loved John Howard. But he was like, again, fuck ScoMo. Um, and mm. he he said something really interesting, which is, well, I don't know any trans people, but fuck, it must be tough to be a trans person. So mm. purely, like, through his hatred of ScoMo, he, like, found an allyship with <laughs> trans people. So, what an amazing yeah. way to build acceptance <laughs> yeah. of uh, diverse sexuality. And, 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 and so he, I, I was like, oh, this guy's going to vote for Labor then because he'd voted for, like, he was a swing voter. He'd voted mm. for Labor before. He's got a family connection. And he was like, mate, I'm going to vote for the Greens, like, with a bit of, like, a like a enthusiasm in his eyes. And, yeah, I think that there was... Partly the Teals had awoken this sense of like, 
people in these seats wanted something new. They like this guy believes he might be economically conservative in some ways, but he believes in climate change. Uh, he believes in like different social policies, and so pe- people like that just haven't really been given an option before. Mm. And then. The Greens have been on the ground for a long time working quite assiduously within the community. They run, like, community gardens in Griffith and stuff. They were there for the flood recoveries. Yeah, I heard they were, for years, doing this incredible ground game of Door like, social and services yeah. would come in and say, people would say, oh, look, no, the Greens have already given us a food delivery package. I mean, that's yeah, pretty that's, impressive levels of work to win. Yeah, a and it sort of, like, sets a... Like, um, I, I come from, like, a devoutly Labor background, so my dad would be rolling in his grave to know that mm. the Greens won seats in Queensland. But I think that there's a it's a positive thing for politics to see the fruit of that active engagement on the ground mm. and, um, and, and giving, like, it's good for democracy that people who don't feel like they're being represented within the two-party system are being given an option, and that sort of, like, sends a message to the major parties on both sides mm. and gives them, like, um, an incentive to actually do the grassroots, like, work. Mm. Because actually, if you think about it, polls have consistently shown that 75, 80% of people want more action on climate change. Mm. And the two-party system actually doesn't deliver that. Like, no, and, and, and the two-party the, – the problem is that the two-party system – the Labor holds three seats in the Hunter mm. and then the LNP hold three seats in central Queensland. And so they're the six seats that are directly affected by – heavily affected by coal mining. And so – neither party feels like they can afford to lose those three seats on either side. And so that, in in a way, has held up Mm. um, the ability to give voters in the inner city or metropolitan areas what they want on on climate change, which is more action. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Chaser Report. Less news, less often. Should we just talk about the whole... Catherine Deves transgender strategy. Do you think that Scott Morrison thought that it was his tamper? Did he really? Yeah. Did he really think that was going to be a thing that turned um, red electorates blue? My 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 understanding, um, having chatted to lib- liberals on background, was that a, 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 and he, he'd cut himself off from a lot of them, so like it it, it was hard to know exactly what he mm. was doing. But their sense was that it was um, a, basically a fuck up to put Deves in there. He didn't put too much thought into it. And then it turned, like he, he probably had a sense that she had these like social conservative bones, but like it wasn't part of this grand master strategy to, mm. to, to flip all these right. seats. It, actually, I guess it does check out that he wouldn't <laughs> have actually done the work. Done the work. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And, and, and so there, there'd been another woman there who was supposed to be running in Warringah, but then she fell out because she just got sick of getting fucked around. And so mm. um, Deves came in, all this stuff happened in the context of uh, a lot of, disillusionment in uh in the in the inner city and so i think morrison was basically found this strategy and ran with it like it, it gave because uh, i spoke to a liberal a few days before the election and i was like mate like labor's a little bit anxious because morrison just keeps on going back to these like Karangamite and like western sydney and what like is this is there actually anything in this yeah and, yeah. and, they, and they were like well the polls just aren't like our internal polling just isn't showing that but possibly what's happening is 
they just need to give him somewhere to go because they can't, <laughs> they can't actually send him into like North Sydney or Wentworth or Goldstein. Like they need, like, and so. So they just said, go to these ones. Go, go, go to, to these ones. These seats. Yeah. You can't do any harm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go to these ones uh, and, and, and like look like you're going to win. Because yeah. it, you, you can't, the worst thing you can do, like I, I think that they knew that, that they were heading towards a loss, but the worst thing that you can do in a campaign situation is like just be like, oh, we've lost. So yeah. imagine, imagine doing all that, uh, kind of cut all those machinations to try and stop local pre-selection and just be like, no, no, we're not, Alex Hawke's not going to turn up to the meeting. We're not going to do it. And we're going to parachute in our hand-picked candidate. And then at the last minute, we're like, oh, she'll do. <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> Amazing. But um, look, you, you've identified a lot of anger towards Morrison that I think hasn't been really discussed much elsewhere. But you also talk about Albanese in the way that Labor tried to make him essentially non-scary and make, make him the non-shorten. And you describe how the kind of fighter aspects of his personality that were a big part of his uh, persona early in his career were kind of tamped down during this campaign. What were some of the ways that they packaged Albo to be an acceptable, you know, uh, devil you hate less than the other guy? Well, uh, yeah, when when he when when he became leader because he'd run in two thousand thirteen, won the party vote, but didn't get the um, the caucus vote, and so he narrowly missed out to Shorten. Uh, and then when he came up in two thousand nineteen, I was sort of being a massive rugby league fan and. Uh, coming from a sort of like diehard Labor family, I was looking forward to this Tory fighter, like leading the Labor Party, which is probably isn't really what the electorate wants in, in reality. Like mm. uh, uh, even within even within seats where people might culturally associate with those things, they're very economically anxious and they don't want any like old mate Brad. Like he's a la- like historically a Labor voter, but he is scared that Labor. He's like internalised this idea that Labor increases taxes and wants to take your money, and so. Labor needed to whether to, to win an election, they needed to not appear like a threat. Mm. Uh, that could have been someone with more charisma might have like excited journalists more, but mm. they also might have freaked out people who are very like who ha- are under mortgage stress or rental stress and who have this like deep anxiety that Labor is, are, are a bit out of touch and sort of want to just want to look after people in the in the cities and so he he changed his rhetoric he obviously changed his appearance over Mm. a a long while and he ended up uh really looking and sounding like um just a middle of the road politician which in some ways is what what he has become like he's been in parliament for a long time he's not exactly the same person that he was in 1998 let alone you know um 1983 and so yeah i think that um part partly it's just his own progression and the mm. change of his personality he didn't say on election night ha sucked in fuck the tories yeah which he could have easily done <laughs> no it, um it was so disciplined and sort of like uh mm. yeah he was he was really um, it was a bit the rudd textbook wasn't it because if you think back and we, we know what rudd became but if you think back to rudd's pitch in 07 it was very much you know i mean i'm an economic conservative i'm he really he wore these very conservative suits he just wanted to be not that much more not scarier than Howard, and I guess Al- Albo followed the same template. Which he, is he followed exactly like he mm. he was mm. really close to Rudd, and he um he definitely like that he mm. definitely followed like thought of Rudd as the model for for winning. He didn't quite have Rudd's public profile and the yeah. this amazing sort of affinity that Rudd was able to kindle. Yeah, fewer with sunrise appearances. Yeah, certainly. like like he 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 he's not Rudd on camera is. Even he, he was a bit dorky, but he was always so so full of self belief. Mm. He always seemed like he 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 knew that he was the best person around the country. I don't think Albanese had that, but he definitely 
Um, he definitely wanted to provide reassurance to a whole heap of voters who might be anxious about Labor, and that's definitely something that Rudd did. Is, is but also, f- it might make Albo a bit of, a better Prime Minister, well, in a way. Well, this is the thing. If he's the first, he must be the first incoming PM since who would be the last one who didn't think they were God's gift to the universe? I can't think of one. I think yeah. um, I think Gillard probably had a bit of that. Mm, uh, Gillard, perhaps, yeah. yeah. All the other, yeah. all the other men. Goodness me, they Fra- were all like by God. Did Fraser? Fra- Fra- Fraser wasn't uh, quite so effusive, but he definitely was born to rule and from like yeah. fr- had like yeah. a sense of destiny and that he was yeah. supposed to be running the country. Holt, Holt was um, <laughs> no. It, I'm serious. It wasn't Holt quite a sort of well, humble? He w- yeah, he was more. He's definitely more gregarious than the traditional mm. like liberals. Like he was sort of. Yeah. I think Frank Ford didn't really have tickets. <laughs> <on> <laughs> so, right, anyway, so but it is true. He. he He's certainly talking about having Barton. a Edmund Barton. Edmund Barton. Frank Ford went to my high school in oh, Toronto, really? actually. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 he was Prime Minister for like eight days Eight or days, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's up on the honour board with Jonathan Thurston. Amazing. Oh, wow, that's that's <laughs> high praise. No, but it's certainly interesting just looking at his style and the way he's uh, sort of acted in the job since coming in, certainly talking about being co- collaborative. And if he doesn't think I'm God's gift to politics, I'll solve every problem myself the way Rudd did. It might well be more effective. I, right? I think it's it's a good model, and I think that he'll run a really good cabinet process. Um, he's not like a OCD know it all, like detail necessarily. <laughs> we detail saw that, yeah, we, and, and <laughs> yeah. we saw that. But that the the thing that made him like a, could make him a bit of a liability on the campaign trail, but actually can actually make him a really good leader. He's like mm. not going to be breathing down everyone in cabinet's neck about what's happening. He'll be able to like outsource, which is something that Hawke, who certainly had a sense of destiny, but Hawke was really good at running that. Um, cabinet process. And the other thing that he has in common with Hawke is that the Hawke government came in in 83, which was quite soon after Whitlam, and Labor was so traumatised by what happened to Whitlam that it gave them like a sense of um, discipline and unity and they had experience. They were like, they were sort of new. You had ministers who had been in government before and knew how easily easily you could fall out of government. That's something that I don't think that um, Rudd was mm. necessarily surrounded by in 2007. It was easy to get a bit ahead of themselves and and for um to think that you could you know knife a prime minister and that people uh, a labor prime minister and that people would sort of just shrug it off. One mm. of the in, most interesting uh, candidates you uh, spoke to, someone who might actually really change just the way the parliament looks and functions, is Zanetta Mascarenas mm. from from WA, and you sort of encapsulate her life story as a bit of a, a study in the contradictions of modern Australia, and it's just interesting to think that the the fault lines in Australian politics might actually change from this election on an ongoing basis. We have more women, we have more people of colour in the parliament. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Because I've got to say, I didn't follow her very closely during the campaign, and perhaps I should have. Uh, she's um, She was just so interesting and so down to earth and, um, and yeah, was able to talk about policy, flip between policy and the personal really seamlessly. Like a, mm. it was, um, and, the, and the interesting thing about her is that, yeah, she's a woman of colour, but she's not pitching herself as like the woke candidate that maybe certain sections of the media would try and like pigeonhole her as. She comes from a rural Western Australian background. She loved her upbringing. Her dad was a fitter and turner. Her mum was a kindy cleaner. Um, they, were very, they were devout Catholics. She married the son of a preacher. Uh, so she she's now lives in, in metropolitan Perth, but she's worked on um, mines for, my, for a lot of her adult life and, and also within the climate change space. So she brings together all these things which aren't supposed to go together. And I think that that's essentially, like I, I think that Labor can do more, but they did it like, like you look at the cohort of, of um, MPs that were elected in Perth, they're like very diverse, mm. but also v- from very humble backgrounds and mm. able to speak in a way that doesn't sound like politicians. And I think that the diversity thing isn't just a positive in terms of reflecting 
modern Australia, which is it, it's amazing that it does that. But it, it's also a really clever way to sig- symbolise to voters this person isn't like a member of the media yes. class because yes. like they don't look they don't look or sound like the traditional idea of the white man politician whom a lot of australia across both sides of politics absolutely hate yes. I mean, what a tragedy yes. that um, christina Keneally couldn't parachute into that seat i i think that 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 Keneally is the textbook case for what the Labor Party shouldn't be doing mm. and Zanita Mascaranis is a textbook case for what they should be doing and um, yeah like the we need more dolphin trainers as well <laughs> yeah, that's true. he's a legend yeah <laughs> let's talk um, finally like about about the teals because in terms of remaking the fault lines this was a huge one we had um, the seats of you know most of the um, Liberal Prime Ministers in in recent memory going to independence what did you discover when you went to those electorates and talked to those sorts of voters? Well, I live in Wentworth, so I like had. Oh, you're one of them. <laughs> I had. Um, I, I I knew like like my street was just covered in um, in Allegra stuff. So before I w- travelled away, like I, I sort of knew what the 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 ground was mm. groundswell was like, uh, and so I I think that what it does is it turned a bunch of these seats that the Liberal Party were able to take for granted into marginal seats, and obviously they've lost them, but like. The Liberal Party had to go from being able to just focus relentlessly on outer suburban, regional, marginal seats to suddenly being spread across the inner city as well. And like they, they obviously didn't end up being able to uh, do that. Like it, it fundamentally changed the sort of campaign that they were able to run. It stretched their resources. Frydenberg got bogged down in um, in Melbourne, even though he's far more popular than Morrison and people like really like him. So um, I, I think it's. Yeah, it, it, it's changed Australian politics in the way, um, in a policy sense, I think, on climate change, but also in a campaign sense about what the Liberals will need to do next time around and the time after that and the time after that. But don't you think, in some ways, the Teals are the DLP of the Liberal Party in that they really are the soft libs or the wet libs got frozen out mm, that's exactly of, what it was. of the Liberal Party under, under and, Morrison. And, and I was thinking about the DLP during mm. the, the election because um, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that it, it's become sort of like an accepted wisdom that Labor isn't the party of national government because Menzies was in for so long and then mm. they've sort of been in and out since. But Labor would have been in um, – Mm. A, a, a few times during that period if the DLP hadn't split and if they had have like been able to maintain those voters. So um, I, I think that it's sort of like a prophecy. It, it, it's sort of like a, should have been a warning to the Liberal Party about what can happen if you alienate a, a, a section of your support base for granted. But isn't that a really fascinating thing going forward? Because if you, if you assume that a lot of these seats are going to continue teal for quite some time, and I imagine after the sugar rush of doing this, that that may well happen, particularly if they're able to achieve the things that they say that they want to achieve... Um, how do how do the Liberal Party and how the coalition more broadly actually navigate a path? Because it seems like you can't have both at once. You can't have the tight links with the Nationals. You can't do what this whole thing of swinging back to the right. It doesn't seems to want to do. You're going to let those seats go indefinitely. So it's a real. They are in this weird situation where they can't really stitch together a broad enough coalition. And this may be a long term, uh, you know, break for them. They may really have. Morrison may not have just won, lost the election, but actually destroyed the party's prospects for a decade or more. Yeah, I I think that um, Dutton will be a really disciplined and relentless opposition leader. Like I I, I think that he in economic relentlessness is a gift that he has. I think yeah, and, and in economic uncertainty, I think that there will be some he will be reassuring to some voters. But I don't see how like if Frydenberg had have remained in Parliament and become the opposition leader, I think that the Liberals would have been able to make a pitch 
um, to win back some of these teal seats at the next election purely on economics and by not being so um, sort of blinkered on climate change and the treatment of women. But I don't see how Dutton... Dutton is Mm. like Morrison Mm. but without the sort of like daggy daggy dad shtick. He's not like a beer-drinking, footy-loving sort of Mm. guy. And like he's from... He's not even... Like he's from like a fair way north of... Like not ages but half an hour north of Brisbane. So he's, Mm. he's like... I, I don't see how he appeals to like the voters that the Liberals lost in I mean, their seats. But he, if you really think that you want to put a Queensland cop in charge of the country, <laughs> and that's what he is, right? That's, that's basically and, what he's, and, he's and he's a, a like the Queensland cop thing. He is probably the part where he does sort of cling to this. Is that his warm every side? Man, the Queensland cop every, side, every man shtick. But he's like in reality, mm. he's a multi-millionaire property developer, which is a pretty good avatar for like the Australian like yeah. society at yeah. large. Like yeah. everyone's sort of like yeah. just pretending to be dinky sort of people, but meanwhile they own like, um, <laughs> yeah. they have like enormous property po- portfolios. Look, it's, it's, it's a fascinating look at um, the election and how it was won and lost. I certainly learned a huge amount from reading it. People should check out the monthly and Lick Blaine's essay, Teal and Loathing. I don't think said fear, but there was some fear, but also Teal and Loathing on the campaign trail. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Aggies from Mode Microphones. We're part of the Acast Creator Network. Catch you tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.